0: Professor and member of the Center for Health Law Studies at St. Louis University School of Law joins me to discuss the effects of structural racism in healthcare. Professor Yerby, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Professor Yerby's bio is of course posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, listeners are likely well aware the U.S. has had a long history of persistent and substantial disparities in healthcare access, delivery, and outcomes. For example, the black-to-white infant mortality ratio has never dropped below 2 to 1. Over the past two decades, the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality has published its National Disparities Report. In it, a third of disparity measures have shown no improvement and nearly one in six have worsened. What largely explains healthcare disparities or health inequities is structural, institutional, or systemic racism. Though frequently less overt, structural racism, the failure to provide equal benefit to racial and ethnic minorities, is embedded in healthcare education, employment, environmental housing, transportation, and numerous other governmental policies. As a result, structural or endemic racism caused minority populations to suffer a far greater disease burden and as a result significantly higher mortality rates. As I've noted recently in previous podcasts, Due to higher rates of on- and under-insurance that have led to higher rates of comorbidities, COVID-19-related deaths among African Americans and Hispanics are far greater than among non-Hispanic whites. George Floyd, before he was killed, had recovered from a COVID-19 infection. Listeners will recall structural racism was the theme of my January 9th discussion with Andrea Freeman regarding her recently published book, *Skim*. Breastfeeding Race, and Injustice. With me again to discuss structural racism in healthcare, is Professor Yearby. So, Professor, with that, I opened with a brief and, I'll admit, somewhat blurred definition of structural racism. I know you distinguish between structural and institutional. Can you explain this difference?
1: Yes. So structural racism is about the ways that our systems are structured, uh, particularly to advantage uh, the dominant group and disadvantage minorities. It also includes the ways that organizations and institutions work together to create standards and policies that benefit them. While harming minorities, um, and so we can see an example of this, particularly in the healthcare system, uh in the healthcare system. When we look at access to healthcare, many predominantly African American neighborhoods, predominantly immigrant neighborhoods, do not have access to hospital care, um, and that is so important during COVID nineteen because that's where many people are receiving tests and treatment for COVID-19 and so the fact that we don't place hospitals based on need or need for health care whether we structure our system in a way that access to health care is based on ability to pay then benefits those who have jobs that have health insurance that can pay for health care while it disadvantages racial and ethnic minorities who tend to work at low-wage jobs that do not have health insurance and cannot pay uh, for health care.
0: Thank you. I do have a question about hospital locations, and we'll get to that. Let me ask as a follow-up a question regarding critical uh, race theory. I was somewhat surprised, actually possibly shocked, that a week ago today the Health Affairs blog briefly discussed CRT in a post by Michelle Morris and others. Can you give us a brief definition of what is critical race theory?
1: Uh, for me, critical race theory is about critiquing how the law has been used as another means uh, to harm minorities, particularly as I think about an anti-discrimination law. When we look at um, historical articles about this, uh, we see the anti-discrimination law has been set up uh, to facilitate and support the existing social structures. When you look at anti-discrimination law in the area of employment, um, you are looking to prove that an individual or that an institution allowed policies that harmed individuals. Um, and so it never gets to the point where you're challenging the structures or the systems of employment. They can stay the same. We only look at individual perpetrators who have done some harm. So when we think about employment, that is so um, relevant now in COVID-19 because a lot of low wage workers are being deemed as essential workers under COVID-19 but they're not being provided with masks, they don't have paid sick leave, they do not um, count under workers comp, they do not receive unemployment compensation because our laws uh, do not apply to them. And so let me give you a specific example. Um, so the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, was passed uh, back during the New Deal time in 1938, but that was al- also the time of Jim Crow. And so it left out many workers, domestic workers, who include home care workers, um, agricultural workers as well. What the Fair Labor Standards Act did was provide for a minimum wage, overtime pay, and limit the work week to 40 hours, um, so most of these workers are not covered. Uh, were not covered by this uh, actual act. When in 2015 they did um, actually begin to be covered under uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act, um, then you see a shift again in the structure of employment and so no longer are they considered employees companies are shifting them to independent contractors so again they're not protected uh, by these laws that say you have to have minimum wage you should receive overtime you re- should receive 40 hours a week and work no more than 40 hours a week and what's important about this as well is that um, most of our worker comp laws are connected to uh, is a person, an employee or independent contractor. And so if you're considered an independent contractor as a home healthcare worker, you're out in hospitals and nursing homes and providing care in homes um, to cover the gaps of care needed under COVID-19, that means you're not necessarily getting a minimum wage. And if you contract COVID-19, you will not get workers comp.
0: So thank you. I'm glad you brought this issue up because under the Obama administration, they extended uh, FLSA um, protections to um, home health workers, obviously low-paid, uh, moreover women of color who had these jobs. Then uh, tell us what the current administration did. They then uh, reversed this regulatory change that the Obama administration tried to propagate, correct? Correct.
1: Uh, so they didn't reverse it um, it the issue becomes yes the Fair Labor Standards Act does apply to home health care workers if they are considered employees the problem is that many companies are uh, deem as deem them as independent contractors and so because they have they're no longer considered employees, then they don't get the same protections under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And so you can see this, I think a perfect example of this is in nursing homes. And so you will have a registered nurse who isn't an employee, but many other certified nursing assistants, many of the traveling uh, nurse aides, Um, Other nurse aides that work in the nursing homes are considered um, independent contractors. So the RN may receive some benefits, uh, but everybody else who are low-wage workers are considered independent contractors. And so they don't get paid time off. They don't have health insurance. And if they get sick, then they have to continue to go to work.
0: Thank you. And this has been a habit in other business sectors where employees are redefined as independent contractors for exactly these same reasons. Let me, let's go to, I know you've written about or commented upon the recently passed CARES Act and what it doesn't do or what it could do, um, relative to whether it's fair labor standards or even, uh, what the Affordable Care Act didn't, uh, provide for. How could the CARES Act, what did the CARES Act leave out uh, related to uh, this matter?
1: So some of the gaps in the CARES Act, um, one, that it provided benefits, but it did it linking it to the amount of employees businesses had. Um, And so that left out um, some essential workers. So that left out some workers in meat processing facilities, um it also left out agricultural workers who are sometimes undocumented immigrants, and so they um, cannot benefit from the employment or health care uh, relief that care um, that cares provides, even though they're continuing to work uh, and produce our food and home health care workers were left out specifically because the industry. Uh, argued that there would be worker shortages and they needed the workers and so they did not want to give them benefits that would make them more likely to stay home when they were sick. Um, I think this is really pertinent now because as we look at um healthcare institutions, hospitals, um, being understaffed, a lot of these home health care workers are now being sent in to hospitals, nursing homes, and other institutions to replace workers who are sick or who have died from COVID-19. And so you have these workers on the front line who are not being provided with the employment relief under the CARES Act. They're not being provided with paid sick leave. Um, if they need testing uh, for COVID-19 symptoms, they are usually covered under Medicaid, which is great. But I think what most people don't understand is that um, COVID-19 is just not a disease about living or dying, that it's also about long-term disability. So it's great that the CARES Act covers people and particularly um some healthcare workers for getting tested, but it does not cover for the cost of care uh, for the initial infection, and it does not cover the cost of care uh, for rehabilitation after you get it or continuing disability. And so you have lots of these workers um, not going to be able to afford the care they need for COVID-19 treatment.
0: I'm I'm glad you make that that latter point because we are increasingly learning that you might survive the infection, but you're left compromised. And in some ways, increasingly, it appears that COVID-19 is a chronic illness because you do suffer or can suffer long-term, uh, major system, uh, failure, more likely heart disease, stroke, et cetera, kidney problems, et cetera, uh, down the road. Let me, um, let me ask, you did mention, I want to get back to you, you did mention hospital closures. We've seen increasingly hospital closures linked to or correlated to communities of, um, of color, uh, exacerbating already the lack of acute or tertiary care, um, predominantly, for example, in African American communities. For example, the much discussed, uh, Hanneman Hospital that served inner city Philadelphia for 150 years plus, uh, closed Uh, last year. So can you explain further uh, this dynamic and, of course, how it's compromising uh, health amongst these populations?
1: Right. And so you could argue uh, that the closures are evidence of institutional racism, and that is neutral policies um, used by institutions to make decisions about where to place hospitals, whether to close hospitals that have a disproportionate impact on racial and ethnic minorities. Um, And part of the issue um, that tends to happen with these closures is, again, it's the argument that um, for business reasons, we are making these closures. Unfortunately, what the data tends to show is that these closures track more uh, with Um, minority populations and the increase of minority populations in neighborhoods than it does with actual fiscal outcomes. Um, And so Professor Sager has mentioned this. Professor Brietta Clark has written about this, who's at uh, Loyola Law School. What I think is important for us to look at during these times is not just how the lack of hospitals is correlated with race, but it's not just about the loss of hospital care. And Professor Clark talks about this, that once the hospital leaves, physicians also leave because physicians usually have privileges connected with hospitals. And so they're going to move closer to the hospitals that they have privileges at, Um And what you're left with sometimes is clinics um, that then do not have the resources to be able to handle all the needs um, in those particular um, areas. One, um, because, right, there's no connection to the hospital, but two, usually those areas have major problems in terms of housing. Um, So here in St. Louis, where um, in the zip code that has the highest rates of COVID-19 infections, um, there's no hospital available to them. They had one public clinic, um, but the public clinic shut down. So they don't have access to testing or treatment. Um, And it's still the same zip code where they have um, a high rate of housing related violations, uh, which includes lack of water, um, clean water, working toilets. Um, so all of these things uh, connect uh, really to not only the, the pandemic that we have, but to underlying health conditions and access to health care for these communities. I do want to just highlight one thing as well is that when we look at this, we often fail to acknowledge that this is happening in the rural areas. Uh, which have the same problems. They don't have access to health care. They don't necessarily have access to clean water, clinics, physicians. So we're seeing the same problem in rural areas, and we're seeing the same problem in areas where farm workers are as well. They don't have access to hospitals, um, and so it's hard to get testing and treatment.
0: Thank you. So clearly the so-called magic of the market is not working and we're seeing increasing, to analogize to food deserts, we're increasingly seeing, I guess we could call them hospital deserts. I, I, just to note, I did cite in my notes here the statistic, over the last 10 years, this past decade, 102 rural hospitals in 27 states have closed, so quite a dramatic uh, effect. Let me, since we, since I did mention in the uh, intro and you did note relative to the CARES Act, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you your take on how uh, this dynamic of structural racism or what you would say about this as it relates to it's playing out during the current pandemic.
1: Yes, I think that it's a, continu- a continuation of how it's played out in other pandemics. Um, You see articles that were written during the 2009 H1N1 um, pandemic that happened, highlighting the fact that racial and ethnic minorities, uh, low-income individuals, had disparities in infection rates for H1N1 because of structural barriers, right, because they had to continue to work. They couldn't socially distance. They couldn't stay at home. Uh, they had underlining infections that increased uh, their susceptibility to the virus and they weren't getting access to treatment and testing that they needed. So fast forward uh, to COVID-19 10 years later and you see the same problems, right? You see a majority of the low-wage workers who are in healthcare and food and agriculture tend to be women, racial minorities, and low-wage workers. They continue to have to work because they're essential. Uh, we don't provide them with protective gear uh, we don't also ensure that there's social distancing within their workplace, and so it increases their risk of exposure to the virus. Oftentimes, the work conditions at the places that they're going um, increase their their rate of infection. You're talking about meat processing, or even working at a hospital as a cleaner or maintenance person and you're not provided with uh, protective gear. You're touching in all around COVID-19. Um, that would make you more susceptible to infection. When we think about meat processing plants, there are already places where high rates of injury, um, you have chemicals, the same thing in farm workers and so they already have respiratory illnesses that can be linked to other uh, jobs and just add in this now risk of COVID-19. I think if you look at lots of the data that talk about uh, African-Americans, Latinos, low-income individuals, they do not have the same access as people in affluent or middle-class areas in terms of getting tested. Um, We've seen articles um, throughout Detroit, Chicago, where African-Americans have been turned away, and in fact a woman who was a healthcare worker in Detroit was turned away three times. From the hospital she worked at and died from COVID-19, just trying to seek care Um, and so it's a continuation unfortunately of our poor response um, to H1N1 and what I am hoping is that if there are other bills or laws that are passed that they try to address uh, these structural issues. The HEROES Act was proposed Um, It hasn't moved forward to the Senate, but it had lots of uh, policies in there and language in there about protecting essential workers, ensuring that they have paid sick leave. I think it's really time that everybody who is an essential worker is presumed to, should be presumed to receive workers' comp, which means that they would not only get their medical bills paid from getting covid Um, but they would also um, then get paid time off. And if they continue to have a disability from COVID-19, even after uh, they recover from the initial infection, that they would get a settlement. Um, We need to make that commitment, especially for all of our essential workers uh, and particularly for our low-wage workers who are women and racial minorities.
0: Okay, thank you. This has been pointed out that the irony being we have essential workers, but they don't get essential health care. So that yeah. makes no sense. Let's go to, um, or let me move to uh, the, the hope aspect of this conversation. You didn't mention the HEROES Act. This was passed in the House by the Democrats. Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, quickly said he was not going to address it. So my question is, uh, beyond extending these protections and benefits, to essential workers, uh, what do you see as as uh, other additional proposed policy solutions to address structural racism in health care? I know in your writings you have talked about uh, the 64 Civil Rights Act, Title VI, uh, specifically that no person uh, independent of uh, race, color, origin uh, excluded from participation or denied benefits. Um, so what what other opportunities are there to try to learn from the pandemic, or reduce uh, instances of structural racism in healthcare.
1: care? To me, this would be a great time to shift how we give out healthcare. care. I think at this moment, uh, we are trying. Um, unfortunately, we haven't actually done it, but provide health care based on need. Uh, and I really would hope that we would shift our model um, of healthcare care and access to health care to providing people health care who need it and providing them health care that sustains them uh, but also helps them get better and so what i would like is that um the requirement for providing health care based on need is expands beyond just our emergency room that as we move to testing contact tracing and perhaps vaccination Um, that we're doing so by, one, partnering with community groups, um, funding community groups, and shifting our model hopefully away just from hospital care but to health care that helps people before they need to get on the ventilators. And so that would move us away um, from structural racism in the sense that it's not just about can you pay or, or not, uh, but really about identifying the people who need the most care and providing that to them in a way uh, that um, benefits them, that empowers their communities to be a part of giving the care, and that recognizes their needs. I would say um, one last thing that I would like to highlight, Um, I think there's been a lot of focus on sort of broader issues around healthcare access, but I want to bring it back to the need for us to ensure that those working within the healthcare system um, are willing to provide healthcare to people who need it the most. Um, And so um, this is separate from structural, right? This is more interpersonal racism. But I would hope that there would be a requirement, not only when people are getting um, their MD degree, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, right, that they uh, are required uh, to pass something regarding um, bias and anti-bias and that becomes a part of their yearly certification. Um, I think that we often look at professionals within the healthcare system, within the legal system, as if they're not impacted uh, or trained to be biased uh, when we all are. And so a requirement uh, that says that we need to get trained every year um, to ensure that our biases do not uh, impact people's access to health care is an important part of the structure of the change in the structure of the health care system that we need to make.
0: Yes, you say in your writing that there be cultural humility training and Title VI training mandatory under the Medicare and Medicaid programs. So to say a bit further about that comment. I do, one last question, I, I, I would again feel remiss if I did not ask, as an attorney, Law professor, uh, the Senate Republicans are saying, uh, whatever next COVID-19 related legislation they move has to include, uh, provision to excuse, uh, healthcare providers, schools, industries, et cetera, immunity from liability. What's, what's your, what's your sense of that policy?
1: Um, I have no problem with that if you provide the support that people need right? So people use the legal system because they do not have the support they need. And so if you're going to pass business liability laws, if you are going to provide people with paid sick leave and hazard pay, protective gear, workers' comp, and unemployment compensation because they are going to work and risking their lives, there's no reason for you to sue a business. I think most people look at it as if it's an employer against an employee, when we're all part of the system. Employers cannot run a business if, there's, if their employees keep getting sick. Um, and so, to me, a great um, balance would be to say, okay, yes, we're not going to allow people to sue businesses, but we're going to provide you with all the support that you need to continue to work and to get better if you get sick and to help your family if you die, then there's no need for people to actually sue. And so a good balance would be, and you see this, I would say um, a little bit in North Carolina, Utah, and Wyoming, they passed a liability shield laws. But in their liability shield laws, they specifically said that this does not impact workers' compensation uh, laws. Um, and so I think we need more of that, where we support people, we would support the employers while also supporting the employees.
0: So the tradeoff is we'll sign off on liability immunity, but we want adequate PPE, uh, to simplify.
1: Um, PPE, but also yes. workers' comp?
0: Correct, yes. Um, and, and health
1: insurance. Yes,
0: yes, of course, yes. Yep. Well, Dr. Yerby, we're at our we're at our time. I appreciate this this overview, uh, very helpful. Let's do hope it is. I know the that we'll learn uh, some lessons from the pandemic, and as a result, uh, address these issues in how we uh, pay for and design or rather deliver healthcare. So, thank you again. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.